Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Back with a good friend, Paul Joseph Watson, the man so nice they named him thrice. He is the editor at large of Infowars.com. You can find him on YouTube at youtube.com slash prisonplanetlife and on Twitter at twitter.com slash prisonplanet. Paul, how are you doing today? Thanks, Stefan. Good to be back. All right. So post debate you uh, you didn't watch it live because you're in the uk of course and uh, wanted to get your your beauty sleep but um when you did watch it um what were your thoughts well i mean we had leading into the debate and this was about a week ago you know the media come out and attack trump because he said mistakenly oh lester holt's a democrat he was actually a registered republican and they're like oh my god another massive trump conspiracy theory saying that lester holt of all people is a democratic operative you know, Trump was proven right yet again. You saw from the debate, we had this amazing scene where, I mean, you can just look at the stats. You know, Trump was challenged six times on his answers by Lester Holt. Hillary wasn't challenged once. You had Trump being interrupted 41 times by Lester Holt, 41 times compared to just seven interruptions for Hillary. And why was that? Well, it was because Matt Lauer hosted the previous presidential forum, and he was absolutely castigated for daring to ask, God forbid, the Supreme Queen Hillary Clinton, what was it, two tough questions? So he was absolutely harangued by the liberal media, by NBC insiders. And so before this debate, you know, massive record viewership, et cetera, et cetera, they got in with Lester Holt, the insiders at NBC, and they said to him, and I report on this. I went on Alex's show yesterday and talked about this. I said, watch what's going to happen with this moderator. They're going to use this euphemism of, oh, you have to fact check Donald Trump, which, of course, we know means being an activist moderator to constantly berate and interrupt him. So he was under pressure, not from the presidential uh, debate commission who came out before and said, it's not the job of the moderator to act as a fact checker to act as, you know, an Encyclopedia Britannica, it's their job to moderate. But he was put under pressure by his own NBC insiders, by Robbie Mook, the Clinton campaign manager, to, quote, fact-check Trump. Of course, he didn't fact-check Hillary Clinton when she lied and said she'd support a TPP from the very beginning, um, opposed it, in fact, but he fact-checked Trump, interrupted Trump 41 times compared to just seven for Hillary. So this was rigged from the very beginning. I said it was going to be rigged, and it was. You know, Trump still did reasonably well. The polls afterwards were interesting. But from the very beginning, this was about an activist moderator, Lester Holt, being pressured to do what he did. And that's why you saw the outcome of the debate as it unfolded. Yeah, and I think I think people really misunderstood the point of the debate as far as winners and losers, because the winners and losers, uh, well, the losers, I would say, were Holt and uh, Clinton. The winners, you could say Trump did did well, and I think he did under the circumstances, but the real winners were you and I. And I, I'm really, really surprised and shocked that more people aren't talking about that the real winners are the alternative media. Because once more, we see the mainstream media wading in, heavily partisan, biased, and manipulative, uh, and uh, this just drives more and more people to channels like yours and channels like mine and other people who are doing great work during this election cycle. So uh, the winner to me is the alternative media, right? As you, I think, recently tweeted, like 94% of people mistrust the mainstream media. This is exactly why. This is exactly why. And they're just completely sepukuing themselves, destroying any last shred of credibility in a drive to keep Trump out of the political arena. Mwah! I love them for that. I mean, it's, it's like you live next to a car dealership. You have a car dealership and he's setting his cars on fire. It's like, oh, well, I'm sorry you lost the cars, but I think my business is just about to expand. Well, exactly. I know from the media angle, I mean, this is a side issue, but we can get back to the debates. I've noticed, Stefan, that in their collapse, they're actually becoming self-aware, finally becoming self-aware. In fact, there was a very interesting clip on The Daily Show just a few days ago with Trevor Noah. He highlighted the fact that a conservative commentator called Tomi Lauren, I think her name is, had got 65 million views on Facebook for one particular video about Colin Kaepernick. Now, this started off as a comedy skit, but by the end of it, he got really serious with his audience, and he basically said, look, she's getting more views than network media 
cable media and readership of the New York Times, the Washington Post, all put together through one Facebook video. They were basically panicking and saying, she's getting more views than the video of the turtle humping the shoe. Now this is a problem. So finally, even with that 94% distrust rate, the media still kept ambling on like they had control over reality, like they had control over the narrative, like they had it locked down. Yet finally, I'm seeing a sort of self-awareness as they spiral down into the abyss that, damn, we're actually being challenged. We're actually our entire narrative is being overthrown because of the Internet, which is why you see this censorship coming in. But again, with the debates, you saw them pile on with Trump. You know, we had Hillary Clinton, whose policies as secretary of state helped launch ISIS. And that's one issue on which, you know, Trump really had her on the ropes. She helped launch ISIS and the international migrant crisis. We came, we saw he died, et cetera, et cetera. Yet the media tells us that it's Trump who should be on the defensive because he said Rosie O'Donnell was fat. That's how they're framing the debate, the narrative. And that's why 94% of Americans distrust the mainstream media, because they're thirsty for that alternative narrative that people like you and I are providing on a daily basis now. Well, we're kind of like the the great girlfriend who's like the, 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 the mistress in a sense, right? So the, the people are sort of married to this horrible woman, this wife or whatever. And we're just like, oh, no, no, come over. You know, we'll, we'll rub your feet. I'll make you some cocoa, you know, hear about your day. And this woman is just shrilling at him to control him and this and that and the other. And then at some point, the man's going to say, I'm leaving you. And then she's like, oh, no, I'll change. I'll do anything you want. And it's like, too late, too late. The media can't pivot, I think, at this point, because the only reason they would pivot is because they're afraid of losing uh, any kind of credit or, or losing listenership or losing at losing advertising dollars. It's not because they've had a sudden attack of rationality and conscience. And those of us who've kind of been plodding along in the shadows here, I guess no longer the shadows anymore, just putting out reliable information, putting out uh, interesting facts, putting out recent arguments. We've been doing the deal the whole the whole length. You've been in this uh, gig for, I think, more than a decade. I've had met around a decade. We've got a body of work and a, a credibility that the media simply cannot reproduce. Uh, and I think if they did try to pivot towards it, they would be falling apart even more quickly than they are now. So I think they're kind of in for the duration. They're stuck. They've just got to keep plodding on. And it just seems like the final couple of frames of Thelma and Louise, they're just whew, off the cliff. Well, precisely. I mean, they still... I mean, let's not underestimate them. In a unified sense, they still have a certain control over the narrative because they all band together and parrot the same talking points. But I mean, when you've got a video, for example, that I make that gets 17 million views on Facebook because it got censored on YouTube, and we use that as a platform to say, hey, look, this is what they're hiding. This is what they don't want you to see, what they're not telling you, as we use the headline in our videos. That is really panicking them. When I can get 17 million views on a five-minute video about the Charlotte riots and it completely obliterates them, it completely blows their narrative out of the water, that's a very real concern for them right now, which is why, for example, we had the article the other day out of the Washington Post begging, pleading with their readers, don't call us the media. That was actually in their headline in a Washington Post article. Because that mere term, mainstream media, has been so vehemently discredited and eviscerated, they now don't even want their own readers to associate the Washington Post with the word media, which is quite a benchmark, I think, of how far we've come in you know, tackling that narrative that they have all the trust and all the authority when they don't. Well, and let's just do a quick recap of how the week has been for the media, right? There are a bunch of attacks uh, in America that the media seemed to pretty much cover up and minimize. And, and uh, then there was the guy they reported as Hispanic, who turned out to be uh, Turkish, uh, who shot up a mall. And then uh, there was, and of course, the aftermath of the Keith Scott shooting uh, in Charlotte. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, the degree to which this race baiting occurred, you know, the, the repeating of this myth that he was sitting there reading a book and was tasered and shot for no reason whatsoever, resulting in the mass destruction of a neighborhood and the undermining of its entire economic future when it turns out, well, I'll let you take it from here because I know you've done some uh, research into this, uh, that narrative uh, fell apart uh, even more quickly than the one to do with Trayvon Martin. Well, precisely, again, every time we have one of these shootings, Black Lives Matter adopt the so-called victim as their latest poster child. Isn't it amazing, Stefan, 
that every time we're told innocent, unarmed black people are supposedly being killed up and down the country, yet in almost every single case, the victim turns out to be a violent armed gang member with a long criminal record who had a weapon or was resisting police or both. And yet they adopt this so-called victim as their poster child every single time. And with Keith Scott, it's come out today that there was a court order against him from his wife she took out a domestic violence protection order because he punched his own son in the head using his fist, kicked his wife and threatened to shoot them both with a gun. Sounds like a really nice guy. So, of course, they had already gone too far with this narrative. They'd set him up as the new poster child. They had to go to the length of when this video came out, supposedly, you know, showing the gun being planted on Keith Scott. It actually turned out from a simple two-minute analysis that what they were talking about was a plastic glove that the black officer who shot Keith Scott had taken out of his pocket, you know, a selection of black gloves, thin plastic gloves that they use for crime scene, dealing with crime scenes. It fluttered to the ground, and then BLM and the left claimed that that was evidence of the police planting a gun on Keith Scott. You go back to the beginning, they claimed he had a book. Well, they released a picture of the gun at the crime scene. Doesn't really, you know, look like any book I've ever read. It looks like a nine millimeter because that's it exactly a magazine, but certainly not a book. Exactly. And the other thing is five white people were killed by police on the same day as Keith Scott. You didn't hear about any of those incidents in the media, did you? Just like you don't hear about the double the amount of white people who are killed by cops every single year because it doesn't fit the narrative. But again, every single poster child that Black Lives Matter claims for its cause, you know, Alton Sterling, massive criminal record. I posted his criminal record on Facebook. Lo and behold, literally 200 death threats within a 24-hour period. So that's the other angle to this. I get many more death threats from Black Lives Matter supporters than even Islamists, which again, completely contradicts this narrative that the media pushed after Charlotte that this is a peaceful group. You had Rachel Maddow, MSNBC get up in the hours after they were setting fire to journalists, beating up, charging CNN reporters live on TV, throwing rocks down onto vehicles full of families on the highway, looting stores, beating up white people in parking lots. And yet MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, CNN came out immediately after and said, largely peaceful protests. Again, that's why 94% of Americans distrust the mainstream media, because how many mass killings inspired by Black Lives Matter, how many riots, how many cities being burned to the ground do we need to see before we realize that this is not only a violent group, I call it a domestic terrorist group, Stefan. If you had white supremacists burning down neighborhoods, looting stores, shooting at each other, as we had in Charlotte, killing police officers en masse, as we had in Dallas, would the media call them peaceful protesters? And I think people are looking at the deconstruction of these media narratives in real time. You know, it's like they're trying to take off this evil plane and we're just taking the engines off the wings as it's trying to take off. And I think what happens is they kind of look back. I know I do. I'm a little older than you. And I look back over my life and I think of, well, what would it have been like in 1990? If the internet had been around and people were dedicated to deconstructing these narratives in real time, or 1980, or 1970, I mean, think of, think of Rodney King and so on, right? What if there had been the internet back then? How much would have been exposed? That, I mean, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, you know, the, the, the precursor to, to Vietnam. What the Reichstag fire? I mean, we have an incredible opportunity uh, at the moment to bring counter narratives, to bring counter facts, to outright soul-destroying, neighborhood-inflaming propaganda. We have the capacity for the first time in human history to undo it all in real time. And that is an incredible power. I mean, I take that that responsibility very, very seriously, as I know you do too as well. But I think people are looking back and saying, well, if everything that's being put forward to me now by the mainstream media is um, manipulated information, what the hell was going on in the, you know, the past couple of decades I've been alive before the internet was around? Well, precisely. And back then, we didn't have cell phone cameras, so we didn't have all these incidents being caught on tape. But again, they hype these incidents. You look at the stats. 
You look at the Harvard study by a black economist. There's no real racial disparity. You know, 50% of homicides are committed by black people, even though they make up 13% of the population. They're involved in more violent confrontations with police. So obviously, they're going to have more violent confrontations with police. It's just a direct statistical connection. And the other angle is, um, you know, you touched on this briefly. It's not about walking while black. I just did an interview with a, a black YouTuber, an up-and-coming YouTuber called Derek Pilot, who said, who echoed the uh, words of Lil Wayne, actually, about a week ago when they tried to bait him into supporting Black Lives Matter. That narrative collapsed. Now everyone's on his back. Lil Wayne's probably been in a few scrapes with the law, I would imagine. Yeah, even he said he hasn't really felt racism directed against him. Yes, it obviously happens, but in nowhere near the numbers that they claim by blowing these incidents completely out of proportion. And the black YouTuber that I interviewed said, it's all about demeanor. It's about the way I dress, the way I behave. It's not about my skin color. This is a young African-American telling me this. So again, it goes back to what causes the kind of behavior that leads to violent confrontations with police that leads to this ghetto gangster lifestyle culture. And again, it's coming out of the same dominant culture that is controlled by the same kind of interests and forces that bankroll Black Lives Matter in the first place, people like George Soros. So if all they're seeing every day is this glorification of gang culture, which leads to this demeanor, to this behavior, to this style of dressing, again, to this embracing violence as some kind of fetish, then obviously they're going to get in more violent confrontations with police. Yes, part of it's socioeconomic, but a dominant part of it is the culture that black people are lulled into, but we never hear that narrative in the media. They want to keep that out of the picture for a reason, because they want to use this to demonize all white people as racist and evil. I mean, even Hillary Clinton last night in the debate basically came out and said, this isn't just a problem with police. This is an inherent bias with everyone. She basically called 100% of Americans racist during the debate. Obviously, there's some racism in America, but that's not the dominant narrative. But you will never hear about it in the media because this Black Lives Matter movement is being controlled from above for a reason which we can get onto. Well, and I did an interview with a, a guy I'd strongly recommend, uh, the Reverend Jesse Peterson, and, and he's, his, he's black, by the way. But his argument is that there's no such thing as racism. We only judge the actions of groups collectively. We all do it. We all do it all the time. And there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, if you're a smoker and you try and get life insurance, you're going to be charged more because, you know, on average, smokers are going to get uh, sick more than non-smokers. And so he says, we're basically just judging the actions of groups. Now, you can say that something is racist if two groups act the same and you prefer one group rather than the other. But if the groups are not acting the same, as you point out, if blacks are committing a disproportionately high amount of crime in America then judging groups is no longer irrational. It's only racism if, the, if it's apples and apples, and you just like one apple more than another. But if it's apples to oranges, then you have a different context to work with. And, you know, one of the things that I have found incredibly frustrating in American race relations is how well the black community was doing in the early to mid part of the 20th century. I mean, you had, uh, up until the, the welfare state, uh, black marriages were stronger than white marriages. They were together longer. And as Walter Williams has pointed out, the, the welfare state has done what Jim Crow couldn't do, what slavery couldn't do, what segregation couldn't do, which is to destroy the black family. Once you destroy the family, once you remove fathers from the equation, and once you tell generation after generation of kids that the system is stacked against them, they've got no chance to get out, everybody hates them, uh, they face this insurmountable glacier wall of white racism they can never get over, then you get despair, you get hopelessness, and then you get the nihilism, and then you get the rage. And this destruction of the black community, which was doing relatively well uh, in the post-war period, you know, lots of blacks getting into the professions and all that, this to me is one of the most evil things that has been done uh, in America. And uh, it took a long time to plant these demon seeds, but man, the flowers that are coming up are pretty hellish. Well, precisely. I mean, Thomas Sowell's talked about this as well, where you you know, you take black people out of that culture, they do a heck of a lot better. This is the culture that's being encouraged. This is the grievance lifestyle that they're being encouraged by the media, by the dominant elite to become embroiled in, to wallow in 
as an excuse to not try and accomplish something in life, to not try and, you know, have actual achievements. Now, obviously, that's difficult if you come from a very poor background, but everyone's got a different baseline. Everyone can make something of themselves. Colin Kaepernick, six, he said that black people in America are oppressed. 68% of NFL football players are black. They don't seem very oppressed to me. They're on huge contracts, multi-million dollar contracts a year. That's not a country that oppresses black people. I'm sorry, but that narrative has been completely debunked over and over again. And as you make the point every time, black communities are being trapped in this welfare cycle where the government tells them, we'll take care of you. This is your enemy. And they get trapped in that grievance culture. And then a group like Black Lives Matter comes along again, funded, controlled from above. This is not a grassroots movement. Hundreds of millions of dollars George Soros funding. WikiLeaks documents came out again and confirmed that. And the media's got this narrative that it's a peaceful group after every single riot, after every cop attack. Peaceful group, peaceful group. It's just a tiny fringe minority. Well, what you saw in Charlotte, 70% of those arrested had out-of-state IDs. So these gang members, these criminals, jump on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon because they know it gives them an excuse to commit violent acts. Now, what's interesting about this is the leaders of BLM in Charlotte, after the riots, after the white kid was beaten up in the parking lot, reporters set on fire, CNN reporters being attacked on camera. Again, they came out and said, this is just a fringe minority. This does not represent us. How dare you say that? That's racist. Yet what did we see a few days later? Black Lives Matter, they came out with an official list of demands one of the demands was to release the rioters and the looters in Charlotte from prison. So that's not a great way to differentiate yourselves from rioters and looters by petitioning, by demanding, by insisting that the authorities release criminals from prison. So again, they complain about not being labeled violent, not being labeled extremist, while petitioning for the violent extremists that have become part of their movement to be released from prison. Again, they're their own worst enemy. Now, this election, I, I have been criticized. And, you know, I think it's fair. Because in the past, I'm like, oh, political action, I don't really believe in it. And voting is nonsense and all that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you, <laughs> I mean, I think that we really do face the future of what you and I can do and what other people on the internet can do coming up in this election. Because the left is fully cognizant of the degree to which these conversations can undo their narrative and the degree to which we can reach millions of people just by having these conversations and fundamentally change their minds in a way that the mainstream media can't because they're bought and paid for, the advertisers, and they are dependent on political spending and all that kind of stuff. You know, Obama and Hillary, what do they want to cede control of the internet to the UN? The UN, uh, which has not had a track record of really, really defending free speech in any positive sense. I really feel that this upcoming election in America and its possible ripple effects throughout Western culture and Western civilization may be a referendum on the future of free speech and the capacity for you and I to do what we do. Because if the control of the internet cedes to the UN, uh, I think we could just set the stopwatch to the decline of alternative voices in the world. Well, I mean, that is the concern. We see the censorship continuing to encroach. You know, a, a few weeks ago, we had a big media controversy about YouTube demonetizing certain videos because they weren't advertiser friendly. Huge media scandal. Yet a few weeks later, we had an even bigger YouTube scandal with internet censorship where they are now going to, quote, fight the trolls by empowering an army of trolls who get points like a credit score system, like the communist Chinese system, to earn points, to tattle on people, to delete comments, to mass flag videos. And it's already happening to me. The Charlotte video that I made last week, it was going viral, immediately hit with an age restriction. Of course, I use that to make it go even more viral on Facebook. But again, they're trying to shut that down as well. So again, we see this continuing encroachment. Now I'm getting messages every day, Stefan, from social justice warriors rubbing their hands together and salivating over the fact they're going to earn this new power via this YouTube heroes program to mass flag and censor my, quote, racist content. So they're already salivating at the mouth that they're going to have the power to do this. 
So we're not really seeing a great deal of censorship right now from government levels. Obviously, we have that UN thing, which is a concern. But again, they're empowering an army of trolls, an army of perpetually offended morons to go after free speech, which is, again, the essence of cultural Marxism. It's about that narrative that all the oppression is coming from within the culture. Now they're empowering this uh, public shaming mob outrage crew to go and take down our videos. And it's, it's becoming more of a, of a problem. You've got Facebook working with the German government and ex-Stasi members to go in to look at comments and arrest Germans for making anti-migrant comments. You've got people in the UK having their homes raided for criticizing immigration. So it's starting to translate from private censorship, from mob outrage into government action. So th those two monsters are starting to fuse and that's the real threat to free speech. And it's, I mean, I'm going to have to move to America eventually because I'm already very careful about certain words, certain phrases I use in my own tweets because I know that people who, you know, I used to live near somebody who lives in Croydon. He got his home ransacked. He got publicly shamed for criticizing immigration on Twitter. That's the impact that it has. That's the real threat to free speech from this underclass, this underclass of trolls that is now being empowered by the likes of Facebook and YouTube to mass flag this content. Well, and I, if I remember rightly, I think Christopher Hitchens also felt that he had to leave the UK and move to America in order to be able to pursue what was real journalism to him, because uh, it just became so challenging to to try and get the truth out as he saw it in the legal framework that exists in Europe, uh, oh, and particularly uh, in the UK. And um, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is to all of this. The idea that you're just going to empower a whole bunch of people to flag. This is so, oh, this is what's driving me nuts about the left at the moment. And there's stuff that I do like about the left, you know, that it is still, uh, they, they have some great criticisms of imperialism and some good stuff that's going on. But man alive, have they ever stopped engaging people intellectually and have just started getting trolley. And that to me, don't flag videos, don't ban videos, make better videos. You know, if Paul's making mistakes, or if you've got better information or better arguments, then go make videos rebutting Paul. The idea that you're just going to flag things and get rid of things that you don't like is the exact opposite of the marketplace of ideas. Ideas. And of course, the funny thing is that uh, people on the left dislike corporations for using the power of the state to limit competition in the free market. But then when it comes to the market of ideas, it seems that they're grabbing at the same ring and want the same power rather than having inter intelligent, humorous, well-researched rebuttals that are engaging and entertaining. Boom! Make it go away. And that is the anti-intellectualism. That is the medievalism that I really, really dislike about the left. And Stefan, I mean, the few voices on the left that are standing up to this, that are standing up to the regressive left that is now eating its own, even they're being targeted. The New York Times came out with an article, I think about a week ago, and the headline was something like, Will Millennials Destroy the Left? And it was an article about a fiction writer who was a liberal, who was writing fiction that included characters from other ethnic cultural backgrounds in his fictional novels. SJWs got offended over that fact because he's white and he can't even write into his novels fictional characters that are non-white because that's cultural appropriation. <laughs> it's cut to the level where they're trying to control novels, fiction. You know, you've, you've got museums in Amsterdam renaming 300-year-old paintings that have the word Negro in the title of the painting to please outrage social justice warriors. They literally want to change history because, as Orwell said, you know, you control the past, you control the future. That's what they're actually doing. People don't realize groups like Black Lives Matter at the very top. Look at who their ideological guru is. This is something I harp on about again and again. A woman called Asata Shakur. Again, they claim this is a peaceful group, okay? Their ideological inspiration, the woman whose name they cry at all their events, the founders who created Black Lives Matter in the first place, wrote essays outlining the foundation of the group, cited this woman as their inspiration. Who is she? She's a 60s extremist, violent radical, a convicted cop killer who is on the FBI's most wanted domestic terrorist list. That's the ideological guru of Black Lives Matter, somebody who left the weather underground because it wasn't violent enough. Again, this is the new incarnation of the weather underground. They literally want to overthrow 
the established system, good and bad, and replace it with this revolutionary communist system, that's in their own writings. You can go on Black Lives Matter's official website. It's not just about stopping police brutality. It's about destroying the nuclear family. They say that on their own official website. It's about taking away parental rights, having this communitarian system where the community brings up everybody's children. Again, no individual rights. This is a complete overthrow of the existing power structure, complete overhaul, complete replacement with this nihilistic Marxist model. This is what groups like Black Lives Matter are all about. It goes way beyond police brutality. That's why they're being funded from the very top by people like George Soros, because they're trying to eviscerate this populist uprising that is uh, paralleling Black Lives Matter. That's why they're doing it, because they want to discredit, eviscerate those kind of movements by labeling them racist, by labeling them bigoted. That's why they're giving all this money, all this exposure, all this prestige to groups like Black Lives Matter. It's about a lot more than fighting police brutality. It's a complete overthrow of the existing system in the spirit of Marxism. Well, and I've mentioned this point on the show before, Paul, but uh, this is nothing new. Uh, in 1922, the Comintern, the Communist International, adopted a policy that they were going to provoke resentments among minorities in Western countries, particularly blacks, in order to destabilize the system. And that, of course, has been uh, occurring with regularity. And the goal is the destruction of the nuclear family, the destruction of the free market, the destruction of the voice of the people, the destruction of the separation of state and economics, and a replacement, as you say, with uh, uh, a Marxist ideal. And um, it just it feels like, didn't we win this battle already? Didn't we sort of in the, in the 80s, didn't we sort of end communism? And it's like what you drive out through the front door seems to come sneaking in through the back door. And it seems like we're kind of back here again. But on the plus side, at least it's a cold war of words at the moment, for the most part, uh, rather than uh, a hot war of, uh, of, of violence. And of course, our goal is to keep it in the war of words so it doesn't spill over to what happens when people give up on their words, which is when they start grabbing their weapons. I mean, it's, it's already starting to go down that route, I would argue. I mean, you know, we make the point about feminism, incredibly harmful to women, pushes this divisive ideology, this man-hating ideology. You know, the fat positivity movement encourages women to, women to be obese, incredibly unhealthy, incredibly harmful. Black Lives Matter is the same. Since that group came into being, that movement, from 2014 to th 2016, murders, violent crime in cities where black people live have skyrocketed. You know, over the past two years, the stats just came out, FBI stats, 47% spike in murders in Chicago, 100% spike in Austin, Texas. You can go through virtually any major city apart from a few. Violent crime murder is through the roof. Since Black Lives Matter started, more black people are being killed. If the goal of this movement was to save black lives, it's completely failed because black people are killing each other in numbers that we haven't seen in decades. So that tells you everything you need to know. This is not about black lives. This is about a militant ideology. And it is an ideology. It's not a race. Just like feminism is not a gender. So it's not sexist to be anti-feminist. It's not racist to be anti-BLM. It's an ideology. And it's an incredibly harmful one. There is also this... It seems inevitable that when the results of bad policies begin to manifest, you know, sort of untrammeled immigration without obviously any particular vetting that's going on, that um, everything has to get minimized, right? So the New York, New Jersey terrorist attacks, uh, oh, it's, it's a good thing they used this weapon and not that weapon. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Or I think as the London mayor said, well, you've just got to get used to terrorism. It's kind of the new normal. It's like... Why? Why do we have to get used to terrorism? Why is it the new normal? Why is it considered absolutely inevitable? Can't do anything about it. Can't say anything about it. Can't push back against it. It's just like the tide coming in. Uh, it, you just have to accept it. It's like rain. Stuff happens. It's like these are the results of very specific choices. Are those specific choices not open to any kind of evaluation or debate? Because if they're not, then there is this inevitability to it. But I thought the whole point was for us to be able to debate public issues. Well, yeah. And I mean, they encourage the new state of normal, you know, tolerating terrorism that enables them to pass restrictive government, you know, laws far more easily. And that's what we've seen. 
the thing about the migrant crisis now, it's got to such unprecedented levels. I mean, I was in Paris a few weeks ago, literally just mattresses on the street, migrant families, kids as young as four or five years old, just lying on mattresses in the middle of Paris, not in the rough ghettos, in the tourist areas now. Paris is basically being turned into an open-air migrant camp. And what's even more insidious, I mean, my mother is an English teacher. She teaches English to all these government officials in France. She's being told, you won't believe this, but this is what she was told. Muslim migrants are going to, you know, their local mayor's office, local government office, and threatening to kill government officials and their family members if they don't give them jobs, like gardening work or yard work. But the most shocking aspect of this is this government official told my mother that they give them the jobs. They don't call the police. They actually give them the jobs after they threaten to kill their families. We've got a situation also in France and Germany. Obviously, you've seen the news, you know, migrants going to swimming pools, raping young boys saying, oh, I thought it was just part of the culture. I thought it was perfectly fine. They don't even try to flee from police. They think that it's that acceptable. It's that normal. We've got migrants chanting Allah Akbar, harassing women in swimming pools. In France, this government official told my mother that to solve this problem of migrants harassing women at swimming pools, they're giving the migrants jobs as lifeguards to help integrate them. And here's the kicker. None of them can swim. So not only are they giving them jobs after they've harassed women to integrate them, They can't even do the job anyway, you know, without extensive training. So that is the cultural suicide that is now taking place in in countries like France and Germany. Meanwhile, you know, we've got National Geographic with their new October issue. The New Europeans, it's it's a Muslim family covered in hijabs. So I guess, you know, if we were to send a bunch of uh, bikini clad women to the United Arab Emirates, would they be the new Middle Easterners? Well, no, they'd be arrested and thrown in jail. But it's all about we have to integrate with their regressive culture rather than they have to integrate with our, you know, so-called liberal free culture in the West. You've got German TV channels with ads saying with a blonde woman in a hijab where they pretend she's Turkish. She turns around. It's a six foot tall blonde German woman saying embrace tolerance. This is the new reality. That's what we're being told to embrace, you know, an ideology which have you, you point out on many occasions You know, 42% of young people in France support suicide bombings. There was a new poll, 28%, 1.5 million Muslims in France have violent extremist views. That is the ideology that we're being ordered to embrace. Otherwise, we're Islamophobic. This is complete cultural suicide. And you can see the effects of it on the streets if you go to any major European city now. Yeah, and I just just wonder, Paul, if I've just maybe been going about things all wrong because I I put in job applications and tried to do a good interview when I was young. Uh, And um, maybe I've just been taking the wrong approach. Like instead of taking a a, job application, I just should have been taking hostages and that would have helped me to advance my career a lot. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm open to these new ways of doing things and maybe I've just got it all wrong. Uh, Instead of uh, putting out entertaining or engaging or insightful videos, I should just corner people and yell at them. Or something like that. And this is something that re- we really need to understand. You know, we inherited these freedoms, uh, the freedom separation of church and state, the remnants of the free market, free speech, uh, public engagement about important issues, democracy, uh, egalitarianism under the law, a more or less equal rights for women, at least as an ideal. We, in- we didn't create these things. We inherited them. Now, of course, we can add to these things a little bit as we go forward. But they're not ours to give away. They're not ours to undermine. And there are people who fled to the West from more oppressive regimes of every race, ethnicity, and religion who came to the West because it is the West. They didn't come, they didn't go to Saudi Arabia, they didn't go to Yemen, they didn't go to South Africa. They came to the West because we had those kinds of freedoms. Now, for those people who fled more oppressive regimes to come to the West, we don't have the right to sell out from underneath them that which they came here to treasure. We don't have the right to take it away from our children. We don't have the right to give away all of these hard-won freedoms, which tens of millions of Europeans died in order to hand to us. And this is what I think is really frustrating. We're squandering, and maybe the precursor to squandering our cultural 
inheritance was the squandering of our children's futures with national debts. Maybe that's just how these kinds of things just weaken us as a whole that we don't feel. If you don't have to protect the economy for the next generation, maybe you don't even have to protect the culture for the next generation. But the West has unique and powerful and positive goods uh, and and um, ideas and ideologies that the world treasures. You know, I mean, I, I really don't care when people say, oh, the West is racist, the rest is sexist. Like, well, then why the hell does everyone want to come? You know, if it's so terrible, if white people are just so terrible, then why would you want to come? Everyone comes because they recognize there are great things in the West. And it is a tragedy that the West gave up things like property rights and uh, violated the non-aggression principle for things as brutal and destructive as the welfare state, which first destroyed minorities and then destroyed poor whites and now is in the uh, process, perhaps even, of destroying Western civilization as a whole. So, yeah, we took a bit of a wrong turn 50 or 60 years ago after we fought fascism and after we fought communism, took a bit of a wrong turn. It's not too late to correct. But if we keep going along this course, the light that was the West will be extinguished. And it's hard to say for how long, but I think it might be in the vicinity of forever. And that's why it's important, Stefan, to embrace and celebrate Western civilization, which at the moment is the ultimate taboo. I mean, they have banned the flying of the English flag in many towns and villages in England, the council, the government, because it's racist. There's this censorship of our own culture, our own heritage. And it's, it's leading us down a path of absolute destruction. You only need to look at Sweden to see that. Again, just the other day, you know, a drive-by shooting, an explosion. They've had cars being set on fire every single night for years now riots in these islamic ghettos it's clearly not working but they censor it as he said earlier now they've gone from you know saying not all muslims after every terror attack to just denying that a terror attack even took place we had a jewish rabbi in strasbourg france stabbed while someone was chanting allah akbar while he's stabbing him to death again mental illness we had a guy who stabbed six people in london he was into ISIS. He was an, into jihadist literature. He defended an Al-Qaeda member online. Again, they called it mental illness. We keep seeing these examples. The mall shooter just a few days ago, again, had ISIS posts on his Tumblr page. But again, nothing to do with Islam. Initially, they called him Hispanic. Turns out to be a Turkish guy interested in ISIS, of course, Hillary Clinton supporter. But again, that narrative, that story dissipates completely. They're now not only saying not all Muslims trying to downplay this, they're outright covering up actual terror attacks to try and hide this narrative that this is a real issue in the West. And that's that's the next phase of it, where they deny that any of this violence is even taking place to begin with. That's what's been most shocking to me over the past few months. Well, and of course, you can't judge an entire religion, but you can judge all white people as racist. And this... Hip hypocritical, well, collectivism is fine as long as it's applied unjustly against white people, particularly white males. I think this is creating a huge amount of frustration. And you can see some of this slow blowback in Donald Trump, in the alt-right, in, in the sort of shitposting that goes on in the internet, where people recognize that those who claim to have the moral high ground are the real collectivists and are applying these collective judgments, but only against uh, whites and in particular white males. And once the left loses that sort of moral authority once the word racist or or sexist or whatever it is once that word lo once those words lose their meaning which people have been terrified of for decades once these words lose their meaning then i think we might have enough of a space to discuss things without hysteria and i'm you know i keep saying to myself i wake up every morning i do my little shave i uh, I do my hair, and then two, and then I say to myself, maybe today, maybe today, Paul, is the day we hit peak leftism, peak social justice warriorism, peak Weimar republicanism, or whatever you want to call it. Maybe today is we've reached peak bad art. We've reached peak politically correct uh, movies. We've we've reached peak, and we're, maybe we're just on the downward slope. I still feel that. I mean, it's been a couple of days I've been saying that. I still feel that that is going to be the case. And I think once we get over that hump, I think there will be an acceleration of our capacity to engage with each other rationally. There'll still be the squawking birds of politically correct hysteria, but I think we'll be able to tune them out a lot more easily. Well, the good news, obviously, is 
Brexit. I mean, that was a massive rejection of the political establishment. It was a populist insurgency against the political class. And that's what Donald Trump is. Okay, Donald Trump is not perfect, but if it wasn't him, it would be someone else. He's in the right place at the right time, which is why it's completely erroneous when the left claims that Donald Trump is just this demagogue. He's not. He's a creation of the environment, this um, conservative revolution that's been sweeping the West for the past five, six years. We've seen it with the AFD in Germany. We've seen it in Finland. We've seen it in other Scandinavian countries. We've seen it with Brexit. Now we're seeing it with Donald Trump. Again, conservative parties. We see it with Le Pen in France. She's going to do well in the elections. This is not just about Donald Trump. And it's that complete lack of self-awareness on the part of the left, which could see Trump claim victory because they fail to understand that it's not about some racist demagogue that's just appeared out of nowhere. It's about a movement and he is just an expression of that movement. They still can't seem to grasp the fact that this is part of a populist middle class uprising, an authentic uprising against the political class. That's what Donald Trump represent, represents and they still can't seem to grasp that reality. Well, I agree with you there, Paul, but I would also say that if, if I were on the left, like I sort of put my, my evil giant thumb helmet, but uh, if I was on the left, I'd say, look, we just need one more election. We just need one more election. Uh, this is Ann Coulter's argument that if Hillary gets in and she jacks up the third world immigration and 550% more Syrian migrants and so on, they'll have the voting base to outvote Republicans from here to eternity. It just comes down to November. One more election. And if that election... Uh, goes to the left, then Western civilization goes to the rubbish heap. I mean, I, I, that would sort of be the argument. And this is why the the hysteria about Trump is so high, because it really does come down to one more election. If they can stuff the ballot with uh, third worlders who are going to vote left, if they can jack that up, then they have uh, they own the government and then we all go uh, into the usual south american style massive income disparities the rich behind gated fences the poor hunting seagulls and rats throughout the sewers of the city we end up in that kind of dystopia and uh, so i can see why since, since they're so close to the victory they've been planning for since the 1960s when in america at least they switched immigration from european to third world in general they're so close and they thought they had it in the bag but somebody came out of right field, I suppose, uh, and is, is really messing up with their plans. And I think that's the kind of hysteria that they're facing at the moment. Precisely. And I mean, the problem they've created for themselves is they've portrayed and characterized Trump as literally Hitler, you know, literally the inheritor of Adolf Hitler's legacy. He gets up on stage last night and his advisors told him to do this. He was reserved. He was calm. He was laid back. Yeah, that might have lost him the debate on points. But again, as uh, Scott Adams, who you've had on your show, said, that debate was simply about Trump appearing to not be scary and to stand there and say, look, you're calling me literally Hitler. You're absolutely insane. Even if he achieves absolutely nothing that he said and merely acts as a roadblock, again, the Supreme Court picks are obviously key to that as well, then that could be the roadblock that really matters in actually rescuing what's left of Western civilization. That's not, you know, hyperbole. That's what it's all about in this election. That's what Brexit was about. That's why they're now trying to dilute that, overturn that, walk it back. We're going to stay on their case about that. And this is what Trump represents. I mean, look at the New York Times yesterday. Globalists besieged. That was their headline. Look at the Financial Times. The Trumpian threat to the global order. Okay, they don't like Donald Trump. This is the political class speaking directly. So there's this narrative, oh, Trump is just another billionaire. He's part of the elite. Well, no, he's not. They're attacking him on a daily basis. Trumpian threat to the global order. You know, butthurt globalists responsible for decades of worldwide bloodshed are basically crapping their pants over Trump, writing headlines about it and saying, look at this terrible situation. How is that a bad thing? This represents the end to decades and decades of bloodletting to ridiculous, expensive, costly, disgraceful wars in the Middle East. Leftists should be celebrating this. They should be getting on board if they're actual real liberals, just like people should have supported Brexit, because, of course, it's Wall Street, it's Goldman Sachs, it's JP Morgan, who are trying to stop Brexit from happening. So as long as we can get that message across that, yes, this is an authentic grassroots movement against the establishment, 
then as you said earlier, we can get more of these independents on our side. And that's going to be the battle with the narrative over the next six weeks or so. Yeah, and I just really wanted to end up um, <clears throat> just by really making a supplication to to the listeners and to the watchers of this. I'm not going to speak for Paul. He can certainly speak for himself very ably. But uh, this is a fight for whether we get to have a civilization or not. This is a fight as to whether we get to keep the treasures handed to us by thousands of years of, of philosophy, of political philosophy, of separation of church and state, free market, all kinds of good things. It all comes down to now, not next month or the month after, not even tomorrow. It comes down to now. And if you've got to put relationships on the line, if you've got to really get in people's faces in a, a verbally adept way, if you've got to share information that, that you think might make you unpopular, well, it's not the First World War. There's no mustard gas. There's no trenches. You can do this little bit of helping to get people to think and to understand the stake of what is going on in the world, in the West at the moment. There is freedom and there is tyranny. There is liberty and there is coercion, and the world is trying to drag the freedoms down to the level of coercion. It is a tug of war with a hellscape in the middle, and we have to find a way to win people back over to freedom, to voluntarism, to communities, to, to supporting each other rather than running to the state, uh, to, to debating rather than, than censoring. We have to get people to that. Otherwise, everything we treasure, everything that is being supported by other people, people like Paul and I and other people working for your freedoms, all of that is going to vanish. And you won't even know how good you have it until it's gone. So please, please act now. Get informed. Get talking to people. Do things that are going to make you unpopular. Because if you don't get to maintain these freedoms, you will really look back and kick yourself for not doing the honorable and brave thing when you still had the freedom to do it. I mean, I would echo that, Stefan, and say just to add, I mean, I get messages from people saying, you live in London. Why are you interested in Trump? Why do you care about this? Well, I don't like everything that Trump proposes, but I understand what he represents. That's why I'm so passionate about this. It doesn't matter where I live. This is about Western civilization. We upset the apple cart with Brexit. We did it. We're going to continue. We're going to prevent them from overturning that, stealing back our democratic mandate. We can do it again. And this populist insurgency, this middle class uprising against the political class should be supported by all anti-war liberals, all true liberals who believe in true liberal principles. And this is for all the marbles. This is it, as you said. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. A great, great chat. As always, just wanted to remind people, please, please go to Infowars.com for Paul's work, uh, as well as YouTube.com slash Prison Planet Live or Prison Planet Live. I can never feel that. <laughs> and also Twitter. Follow him. He's got great tweets at Twitter.com slash Prison Planet. Uh, all the best, Paul. Thanks. And I'm sure we'll talking again soon. OK, thanks, Stefan. Appreciate it.